This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. Everyone I talk to on this show is someone I follow or was told to follow online. Most of the conversations you'll hear are with people I have never met in person, yet they've impacted how I think. What does it look like for Christians to enter the chat thoughtfully? Let's grow together on Viral Jesus. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. Well, we are closing out the month of March. We are also starting a new pod class next week. I'm actually going to kind of open it up today. So really, if you're going to do this with a group, which you know how I feel about our pod classes, this is how learning works, friend. You listen by yourself, but then you have to discuss it with somebody in order to internalize it or have it actually transform your thoughts and do meaningful things to your system. You have to share it with somebody else. So I'm asking you, probably you want to start with today's episode sharing today's episode with somebody else, discussing it. We're going to set the theme for what we're going to be talking about for the next four weeks. But first, it's time for Social Toolkit. This is where we discuss practical tips and best practices for entering the chat. And today, I wanted to talk about how we are communicating online when it comes to the sensitive topic of gun reform and school shootings. I wanted to connect you with Esau McCauley. Esau is an author, an associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. He's also a New York Times contributor and longtime friend of Viral Jesus. I think our first ever episode was with Esau. And I saw his article on Twitter that he wrote for the New York Times responding to the school shooting that took place on Monday. I have man, I did a prayer walk last night over it. I'm just sick to my stomach. I'm sure you are too. This was the 19th school shooting or university shooting so far in 2023. And it happened at the Covenant School, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church, where the shooter killed three nine-year-olds and three adults at the school. And I know I have friends that are a part of this community. I'm sure you do too. My heart is just breaking. And I want to surround this school and the Nashville community in prayer. Um, And so as we navigate conversations like this online, I invited Esau on to talk to us about his article that was all over my Twitter feed yesterday for the New York Times. It was titled, How Can We Be a Country That Does This? to our children. Esau, you just subtweeted your article 
And I just want to read the caption that you put. It says, whenever I write about gun control, I get the most angry responses from fellow Christians. The hold that guns have on some of us is heartbreaking, not just disagreement, vitriol. Yeah. What are you experiencing in response to your article? Well, um, I think the real ish question isn't like what I'm experiencing. It's kind of like what is going on in the church and how we might respond mm. to it. And so I wrote the article because I think that we should just never normalize evil. Mm. And what we're seeing that's happening to our children and adults in schools and cafeterias and library all over this country, it's just, it's heartbreaking. And so I wanted to write something that um, allowed us to feel that discomfort and that pain. And I was surprised that when I wrote that, that, that the people who were angry that I might suggest something like gun reform were Christians. I just, I just, I didn't understand. When you write something publicly, you expect to get pushback. That's just right. normal give and take of, of, of public discourse. But I just can't understand why the mere idea of gun control would lead to people saying things about my faith and about, you know, what they presume my ideology is. And so it, reveals something unhealthy about the connection between guns and certain segments of the church. I do think this is why so many Christians are nervous to even enter this conversation online. We know, according to a Hill survey, it's two thirds of Americans want gun reform. Yeah. And yet there's like this very loud, intense minority that keeps dominating the laws and dominating the conversation what advice would you give to a Christian that they want to do something and yet they're afraid for the pushback? I think that, you know, the one of the things that I've learned, because when I don't write about gun control, I often write about race and, and, right. and Christian faith. And one of the things that you learn when you begin to talk about racism is that the, the first weapon that they that your fellow Christians can levy at you is that you're a bad Christian for doing so. Mm-hmm. And that you are distracted from the gospel, whatever they might mean by that. And not to be confident that the Bible tells me, do not be afraid. Mm-hmm. And and that at a certain point, you can't allow fear to limit our actions. And so there, there's a lot of what we don't say that that is defined by fear. And I just became really, really comfortable, like, in the depths of my being, that God doesn't like racism and that racism exists in the world and it affects the lives of people. And the people who, who disagree with that idea are sadly um, mistaken. It doesn't mean I have to hate them, I have to be mean to them, I don't have to convince them. But I'm convinced in my own mind that God opposes racial bias and that racial bias still affects people. And so when people call me a bad Christian, I have to understand that they are misunderstanding God's call to his people. I um, am not going to argue that I am confident on the exact sets of policies that God has in mind for the United States vis-a-vis guns. I don't, I'm not a policy expert, but I do think that Christians are able to discern evil and discern when something is broken in the world and in the society. And I'm just utterly confident that, that our relationship to guns and violence in America is broken. And even if I'm wrong about some of the solutions, the need to have the conversation and the need to discuss this as an issue of Christian concern is not something that makes me a bad person. It doesn't make me a bad Christian. 
Now, I could be wrong about like the solutions. That's fine. Like we can dis- disagree on that. But the idea that I'm saying we are unique in the world in the massacre of our children at schools, and that is something that breaks the heart of God. I'm, I'm confident that if God's going to, there's lots of things I'm, I'm worried about when the judgment day comes. I'm not worried about God saying, Esau, you were too concerned with the massacre of our children because of automatic weapons. And if that's something that I encounter on the judgment day and God says, you know what, Esau, you shouldn't have been worried about people coming into schools and shooting them up. And you should have, then I, I would take that out. Trust me, I got a lot of stuff I have to answer for. I've not been the perfect Christian. I'm not a saint. You know, I, I make mistakes like everybody else. But on this issue, they're killing children. And so I am willing to take whatever small hits to my my standing in certain segments of the church if it means win, winning two or three more people to the cause of no more automatic weapons slaughtering children in schools. And so that's just that's just how I feel. Um and it's just how I try to live my life. I don't I don't have all the answers, but I, I just I can't imagine there is nothing that we can do. I just can't imagine it. Because this isn't normal. And, and one of the things that I talk about is that we have to feel the abnormality of this. And I don't think that we did. In other words, when I got ready to to write this piece, I struggled with whether or not I was going to write anything because everything that can be said has been said. And so I was tempted to say, you know what, I'm just going to let this go because if I wrote about every mass shooting, every column that I wrote, I could write a column every month about mass shooting. But I said, we have to remember that this is not normal and to keep that abnormality in front of people. And so when I when I opened it up talking about the clothes of children, right, and how we know that, like, when little kids are in suits and ties, and that's just like, we know it's ridiculous because they're kids, and we know they're, they're pretending. And there's something about a tiny casket. There's something about it. When you see a tiny casket, we know something horrible has gone wrong. And so when I said we can judge a nation by the amount of tiny caskets we tolerate, it means that you can ask the question, is whatever else you want to say about a country, if this country is comfortable with the creation of of tiny caskets due to gun violence and whatever means, right? Not just gun violence, tiny children dying, then something is wrong. And so I wanted us to feel that wrongness. And then... I believe that when the church cares about something, we can change it. I believe that if all of us cared about it and the politicians knew whatever else I did, if I didn't stop people from like shooting up schools and and churches and, and grocery stores, then I couldn't get the Christian vote. The laws would change. But politicians know that they can allow the ongoing massacre about children in schools and not lose significant sections of certain Christian votes. And that's the problem. And I know this is supposed to be short, so I'll stop talking, I'll say this. I am just begging that the church becomes dangerous again. That it's not beholden to any one political party, that people have, the politicians and leaders have to say, 
if I do right, the church will support me. If I do wrong, the church will reject me. And then I have to be right individually on each issue, not because I'm right on one thing, I can ignore 15 other things. But in each case, that the fear that politicians and leaders have is what if I lose the church's support if I don't do the right thing? And that's kind of what I was trying to get people to do is to see it, see it as weird and abnormal. I just want to close by reading a quote that you have in the article. It says, do not misunderstand. I believe in the power of prayer, but the Christian response can't be limited to it. Esau, thank you so much for having this conversation with us publicly as we try to navigate our social toolkit around how we as Christians can discuss sensitive topics like this one. Our next pod class is going to take all of us out of our comfort zones a little bit, challenge us to see the gospel. I believe in light of the kingdom vision God actually intended. And to do that, we're going to go through a pod class series together called Who is My Neighbor? I want to set the stage for you in our conversation today as far as why I would choose to do a series on this. And I don't think I can do that without going back to Luke 10. So if you have your Bible, if you can pull it up on your phone, it might be easier for you to go along with me to read it together as I go through this text. We're going to go to Luke 10, 25 through 29. I'm just going to read it to you. Verse 25 says, Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus says to the lawyer, which of these three became a neighbor? And the lawyer answers, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, go and do the same. One of my favorite commentators on this parable of the Good Samaritan is Kenneth E. Bailey a book you have to read. It is such an important book, and it's called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And in chapter 22 of that book, he gives an excellent commentary on the Good Samaritan. I'm going to share some of his points with you right here in an attempt to set up the need for this series, actually the need for kind of us living out this parable and all of Christianity, honestly. But we are going to control what we can control, which is a pod class series, Who is My Neighbor?, where we can really go into the themes that are brought up right here in Luke 10. 
So in Luke 10, and again, you can open your Bible and go through it with me. Bailey first notes that right away, we see something in the text that would have sent a message to the original first century audience as they read it. And we may miss that message today. It says in verse 25, then an expert in the law stood up. There's something there. There's something there. This is why I love reading the commentaries because you and I might read that, you know, 15 times and not think anything of it. But Bailey notes that in Middle Eastern culture at this time, teachers speak while students sit. So right here in verse 25, it says, then an expert in the law stood up. The fact that this man stands like a teacher, but then proceeds to ask a question like a student shows that there's some deception going on here. The purpose is to test the rabbi Jesus in front of an audience. Bailey also points out in reading scripture through Middle Eastern eyes that there is a well-known story in the Talmud about Rabbi Shammai, who was an important figure in Judaism. Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel lived in a generation before Jesus and were the founders of two different schools of religious thought that were very prominent in Jesus's day. So the story in the Talmud says that someone came up to Rabbi Shammai and said, teach me the whole law while I stand on one foot. And Rabbi Shammai gets angry and grabs a stick and drives the man away. Well, the man who's a Gentile is not swayed. So he goes up to the other teacher, the other great well-known rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, and he asks him the same question. Teach me the whole law while I stand on one foot. If you can teach me the whole law while I stand on one foot, I'll be converted. And Hillel responds by saying this. He says, what is hateful to you, to your neighbor, don't do. That's the entirety of the law. Everything else is commentary, so go study. I'm gonna read that part to you again. I want you to hear it one more time. So the man comes up to Rabbi Halal and he says, teach me the whole law while I stand on one foot. Obviously, there's there's so many different laws, right, in the Jewish tradition and teaching. So it's almost like a mocking question. But Halal answers it and he responds by saying, what is hateful to you, to your neighbor, don't do. That's the entirety of the law. Everything else is commentary. Go study. So the man who goes to Jesus is it's essentially a throwback to what the story would have already have been told about Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Halal, where he says to Jesus, you know, tell me what's the law? What is your teaching? The man who responds to Jesus is quoting. So the lawyer is quoting back what Jesus has already taught earlier. And we know that because it's recorded in other gospels. We see it in Mark 12, 30 through 31. And it is essentially in line with the teachings of Rabbi Halal, except 
Halal put it in the negative. He said, what is hateful to you, to your neighbor, do not do. Jesus takes it and moves it toward a positive. He takes it from hate to love. So Jesus responds by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So you could repeat that while standing on one foot. But I do want you to notice the order. What is the order that Jesus places this? So first, we are to love God with all our hearts, right? And then we love our neighbor. Kenneth Bailey says, it is ordered this way because the only way, (laughs) the only way we can complete the arduous task of loving our neighbors is if we fully love God. Friend, it is God who gives us the ability and the light and the power of the Spirit that we are so transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ that we are able to truly love one another. This isn't fluffy, feel-good religion. This is hard, holy work. And we know it is hard because the very next thing that happens in Luke 10 is what we read in verse 29. And it says this, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and uh, just, just so I'm clear, who, who exactly is my neighbor? Remember, the original question was, how do I inherit eternal life? And then the man quotes back Jesus's teaching on loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And then the man immediately is like, wait, 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 wait. I need some clarification on this. I want to inherit eternal life. And to do that, I have to love God. Okay, same page. But who exactly are we including and excluding when we say neighbor? (laughs) Can you clarify that for me? I just want to make sure I'm doing this right. So who can I include and who do I exclude? When we say neighbor, who exactly is my neighbor? And if you thought Jesus was some easy, fluffy, cutesy rabbi that just says things that make people feel good, that's sometimes the argument that I hear, oh, this God of love, like it's a flimsy thing and people are taking away the the truth of who God is. Oh, no, 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 no. We know that that's not true because of Jesus's reply right here in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You can immediately dispel that picture of some cutesy rabbi teaching because rather than answer the man's question about who is my neighbor, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Like, I promise you, When the man asked, who is my neighbor? There was zero chance, and I mean zero. He saw coming what Jesus is about to say. So to understand Jesus's answer, we're gonna go through the parable of the Good Samaritan right here in our conversation today. And in the story, the first person that comes upon this beaten traveler is a priest 
And Bailey notes that priests in this time were part of the cultural elites. They were often wealthy. He says, notice that it doesn't say the priest was walking down the road. It says he was going down the road. A wealthy priest, according to Bailey, would have had means of transportation. So it isn't just that he doesn't stop to help this man who's been beaten by robbers, right? And left for dead, beaten and left in the middle of the road. It's not just that he doesn't help. It's also that he has the means to, and he still doesn't help him. Bailey notes that if the priest had known for sure that the man in the road who'd just been beaten and left there was Jewish, he would have been bound to help him. But since the man is beaten, and it says in the text, right, that they even take his clothes. So all of the identifiers of his ethnic or cultural identity are stripped away. He's left for dead, so he's not even speaking so that he can ascertain the language that he's speaking. Is the priest required to help a non-Jew? Also, if the man was not wounded, but was dead, the priest would have become ceremonially defiled. And if defiled, he would have to return to Jerusalem and undergo a week-long process of purification. So the text says that the man is beaten by robbers. They take his clothes and they leave him for dead there on the road. And the priest, who all the hearers at that time would understand a wealthy righteous, godly man who has the means to help doesn't. And he keeps going down the road. The next person who comes in Jesus's parable here of the Good Samaritan is a Levite. And Bailey says that the Levites functioned in the temples as assistants to the priests. So the question then becomes, could the Levite, who is the assistant to the priest, maybe even the priest who just went down the road, he could have been riding behind him to go help him in the temple. What would it look like if when the priest didn't stop, now the Levite stops and assists this man and rides into Jericho with a wounded man on his animal after the priest he may be serving in a temple had just opted to leave him there. That would be dishonoring. It might even look insulting. And so the priest goes by who could do something and just does nothing. And the Levite goes by the assistant to the priest who could do something, but instead chooses to do nothing. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, 
your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. Next comes the Samaritan. Kenneth Bailey notes that in first century Palestine, this type of story that has a progression like this would be intentionally structured. So if the first person is a priest, the next progression or the next level of status of the person would be a Levite, which we know it was in the story. So the third person would be the next progression of a little bit lower status. And it should have been a Jewish layman that often would also help in temple services. But that is not the progression Jesus tells. In fact, Bailey says this progression that Jesus actually uses would have made an explosion in the ears of his listeners. The third person in Jesus' parable is the Samaritan. It's a hated outsider. The story would make much more sense if Jesus had told about a wounded Samaritan who was helped by a good, righteous Jew. Like, that would make sense. Essentially, what Jesus did would be like going to a Southern white church in 1802 and telling this story, saying, hey, I have a story for you. Here's how you inherit eternal life. And he tells a story of an African-American who helps a wounded white man after the priest in the town and the pastor in the town have just passed the man by and left him for dead in the road. What do you think would happen to a religious teacher in 1802 who told the story that Jesus just told? It would be one thing to have the African-American man help the white man on the road, but the progression of the supposedly religious elites being too busy with their religiosity to actually engage in the gospel right in front of them. And then an African-American man emerges as the hero of the story, telling that type of story to a white audience, let's say in Selma, Alabama in 1802, maybe enough to get you killed. And here Jesus is telling that story. Unlike the other two travelers, the Samaritan is moved with compassion. And most commentators reference the Good Samaritan, by the way, as a symbol for Jesus himself. The Samaritan goes up to this naked, dying man who's been left in the road and uses all of his available resources to provide aid, taking out, the story says, the oil that is with him 
and the wine that he has carried for his own journey and, and pours them onto this man's wounds bandages him, puts him on his own animal and takes him to the inn. The Samaritan has paid a high price to help a wounded stranger. Kenneth Bailey also notes that the Samaritan risks his own life by bringing the man into an inn in Jewish territory. Inns were in villages, not in the wilderness. He could have bandaged him and left him on the edge of the city of Jericho and like just rolled him off of his animal and left him there and took off, right? Like he could have done that and still honestly been a hero, but that's not the story. A Samaritan would surely not be safe in a Jewish town with a wounded Jew on the back of his riding animal. How would people know that he hadn't beat the man himself? Again, just so that we understand the context because so much is lost in just the years since this story is told, the thousands of years between this story. Again, it would be like an African-American taking a wounded white man who's been beaten and robbed into Selma, Alabama in 1802, who was just left for dead and saying, hey, someone else did this and I wanted to help. Surely that would probably raise a lot of people's suspicions in the town. That would be a really dangerous thing for a black man at that time to do. That would be a dangerous thing to do in the 1900s. There could be a vengeance killing without a second thought. Kenneth Bailey says the Good Samaritan leaves the man or the keeper at the inn to pay for the man with two denarii, which would have been enough for food and lodging for maybe a week or two. Why would he leave him with the money? Well, a lodger who could not pay his debt was at risk in first century culture of being sold as a slave. The Samaritan not only pays for what the robbers have done, but he risks his own life to protect the man after the failure of the religious leaders on the road to Jericho to so much as even check on the man that's wounded in the road. So the story of the Good Samaritan is told, right? And then in verse 36, Jesus asks the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Verse 37 reads, the one who showed him mercy, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Hmm. Do you see why I wanted to do this pod class? <laughs> Kenneth Bailey notes that Jesus never directly answers the man's question of who is my neighbor. Instead, he asks a larger question. To whom should I become a neighbor? And the answer becomes 
to anyone who has a need. To anyone who's in need. Friend, I want to do this series with you because I want to journey with you as we love the Lord our God with all our hearts and our souls and our minds. And then through the transformative power of Jesus Christ, may we be able to love our neighbors as ourselves. If you learned something this episode, please rate us on your podcast app, leave us a review, and please share it either online with a friend because that is how we make Jesus go viral. We are going to have so many good guests to help us wrestle with this question of who is my neighbor? What does this actually look like for me as a Christian in 2023? Am I I being a neighbor to people around me? To whom should I be a neighbor? How do we answer that question? And apparently it really matters. Apparently answering this question and wrestling with this question is part of how we inherit eternal life. We learn how to love God. And through our pursuit of God, it will allow us to better love the image of God that we see in each other. So what did we learn from today's episode? Number one, Jesus gives the man an understanding of the law that could be recited while standing on one foot. And it is found in Mark 12, 30 through 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Number two, the progression of the story of the Good Samaritan should have ended with a Jewish layman who saves the wounded traveler, but it doesn't. It ends with a Samaritan a people that evoked so much racial tension and cultural hostility that Kenneth Bailey says it would have left an explosion in the ears of Jesus's listeners. Jesus was making a point. Number three, the question is not, who is my neighbor? The larger question that we're gonna wrestle with over these next four weeks is to whom should I become a neighbor? And the answer to that is to anyone who has a need. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Next week, I start episode one of our pod class, Who is My Neighbor? And we come out of the gate with Terry Wildman. Terry is the lead translator, general editor and project manager at 
and project manager of the First Nations version and indigenous translation of the New Testament. And this conversation is going to really challenge some of how we see scripture and interpret scripture. It was just so good. And I'm so grateful that you get to hear it. I'm so excited for you to join me in this journey of our new pod class, Who Is My Neighbor? We'll be doing this for the next four weeks. I'll see you next week for another conversation where a viral Jesus guest talks and you and I listen so we can learn. I love growing with you on Viral Jesus. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip